This reading is from Luther's Works Linker Edition, Volume 14. The 22nd Sunday after Trinity, and the text is from Matthew 18, 23 to 35. The Unmerciful Servant. The summary of this gospel is, Through the mercy and grace of God, all sins will be forgiven, however great they may be. But his sins will not be forgiven, who will not forgive his brother. As Christ has taught us to pray, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. The text, Matthew 18, 23 to 35. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take count of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him ten thousand talents. But forasmuch as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him an hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry, and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desiredst me. Shouldst not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant? even as I had pity on thee. And his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. Now, though we've already read the summary of this gospel, I'll read it again. Through the mercy and grace of God, all sins will be forgiven, however great they may be. But his sins will not be forgiven, he who will not forgive his brother. This gospel, or parable, Christ our Lord spoke in reply to St. Peter, to whom he had just entrusted the keys to loose and to bind. Matthew 16:19. When Peter asked him how often he should forgive his neighbor, whether seven times were enough, he answered, Not seven times, but seventy times seven. And then Christ related this parable, and with it concludes that our Heavenly Father will do unto us, If we forgive not our neighbor, as this king did unto his servant, who would not forgive his fellow servant a very small debt after he had forgiven him so great a debt. 
First, before we consider the gospel itself, let's examine what kind of a rebuke it is by which the servant's right is denied. For the other servant who owed him a hundred shillings should, according to justice, have justly paid him this money. Even the first also had a good right to demand what was his own. If an appeal had been made to the public sentiment, everyone would have been compelled to agree with him and say, it is just and right for him to pay what he owes. Why then this procedure, that his Lord abolishes his claim and besides condemns the servant because he demands and executes his right? Answer. It was thus written that we might know that it is altogether a different thing in the eye of God than it is in the eye of the world. And often that which is not right before God is right and just before the world. For before the world this servant stands an honorable man, but before God he is called a wicked servant, and he is banned for acting as one who is worthy of eternal condemnation. It is therefore decreed when we deal with God that we must stand free and let goods, honor, right, wrong, and everything go that we have. And we will not be excused when we say, I'm right, therefore I will not suffer a man to do me wrong. As God requires that we should renounce all our rights and forgive our neighbor. Concerning this, however, our high schools and the learned have preached and taught quite differently, that we are not obliged to give away to another, surrender our rights, but that it is just for everyone to secure his dues. This is the first rebuff. Now let us consider this gospel more fully. We have often said that the gospel or the kingdom of God is nothing else than a state or government in which there is nothing but forgiveness of sins. Wherever there is a state or government in which sins are not forgiven, no gospel or kingdom of God is found there. Therefore we must clearly distinguish these two kingdoms from each other in which sins are rebuked and sins are forgiven, or in which our rights are demanded and our rights are pardoned. In the kingdom of God where God rules with the gospel, there is no demand for right and dues, but all is pure forgiveness, pardon, and giving. No anger, no punishment, but all is pure brotherly service and kindness. By this, however, our civil rights are not abolished, for this parable teaches nothing of the kingdoms of this world, but only of the kingdom of God. Therefore, whoever is only under the civil government of the world he is far from the kingdom of heaven, for all this still belongs to perdition, as when a prince or ruler rules his people as not to permit anyone to be wronged, punishes evildoer, does well, and is praised. For this, for thus it is in this government, pay what thou owest, if not thou will be cast into prison. Such government we must have but no one will thereby get to heaven, nor will the world be saved by it. But it is necessary for the reason that the world may not become worse. It is only a protection against and a prevention of wickedness. For if it were not for this government, one would devour the other, and no person would protect his life, goods, wife, and child. So, 
in order that everyone or everything may not go to ruin, God has instituted functions of the sword by which wickedness may in part be prevented, so that the civil government may secure and maintain peace, and no one may wrong another. Therefore, it must be tolerated, such a government. And yet, as we have said, it has not been established for citizens of heaven, but simply in order that the people may not fall deeper into hell and make matters worse. Therefore, no one dare boast who is under the civil government that he is therefore right before God. For him, all is yet wrong. For you must come to the point that you also avoid what the world claims to be right. The aim of this gospel is to describe to us forgiveness for both parties. First, the Lord forgives a servant all his debt. Then he demands of him that he also in like manner forgive his fellow servant and pardon his debt. This God demands, and thus his kingdom shall stand. Hence, no one should be so wicked and allow himself to be so angry as to be unable to forgive his neighbor. And as is written, if he would even offend you seventy times seven, that is, as often as he is able to offend you, you are to let your right and claim go and freely give him everything. Why so? Because Christ has also done the same for you in that he began and established a kingdom in which there is nothing but grace that is to endure forever, that everything as often as you sin may be forgiven. Because he has sent forth his gospel not to proclaim punishment, but grace alone. Now, because this government stands, you can at all times rise again, however deep and often you fall. For even if you fall, yet this gospel and mercy seat remain and stand forever. Therefore, as soon as you come and rise again, you again have grace. But he requires of you to forgive your neighbor whatever he has done against you, else you will neither be in this gracious kingdom nor enjoy the gospel that your sins may be forgiven. This, in short, is the idea and the sense of this gospel. However, it is here not forgotten who those are who grasp and enjoy the gospel, for it is indeed a glorious kingdom and a gracious government, because there is preached in it nothing but the forgiveness of sins, though it does not enter everyone's heart. Hence there are many rude and vicious people who misuse the gospel, who live a free life and do as they please and think that no one shall ever rebuke them because the gospel preaches nothing but the forgiveness of sins. To those the gospel is not preached who thus despise a great treasure and treat it wantonly. For this reason they do not belong to this kingdom but only to the civil government where they may be prevented from doing whatever they wish. To whom then is the gospel preached? To those who feel their distress, as this servant does his. Therefore observe how it is with him. 
The Lord has compassion on his wretchedness and gives him more than he could desire. But before this is done, the text says that the Lord would make a reckoning with his servants, and as he began to reckon, this one appeared before him, who owed him ten thousand talents. But as he had not wherewith to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. This was indeed no cheering sermon, nothing but great earnestness, and the most terrible sentence. Now he becomes so uneasy that he falls down and pleads for grace and promises more than he has and can pay and says, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. Here are pictured and set forth those who enjoy the gospel in its full measure. For thus it is between God and us. When God wishes to reckon with us, he sends forth the preaching of the law, by which we learn to know what we are. As when God says to the conscience, Thou shalt have no other gods, but esteem me only as God, and love me with all thy heart, trust in me alone. This is a reckoning and the register in which is written what we owe. This he takes in hand and reads to us and says, Do you see you are required to do? Do you see what you are required to do? You are to fear, love, and honor me alone, and trust only in me and hope in me for the best. But you do the contrary and are my enemy. You do not believe in me, but you put your trust in other things. To sum up, you see here, you do not keep a single letter of the law. Now when the conscience hears such things, and the law thoroughly comes at us, then we see our duty, and that we have not done it, and we perceive that we have not kept a letter of it, and must confess that we have not believed or loved God a single moment. What now will the Lord do? When the conscience is thus led captive and confesses that it must be lost, becomes anxious and fearful, he says, Sell him and all he has, that payment may be made. This is a sentence which immediately follows when the law reveals sins and says, This thou shouldest do and have this thou shouldest do and have done, but thou hast not done it. For punishment follows sin, that payment may be made. For God has not given his law to the end to allow those to escape who disobey it. It's not sweet nor friendly, but brings with it bitter, horrible punishment and delivers us to Satan, casts us into hell and leaves us in punishment until we've paid the uttermost farthing. This St. Paul has correctly explained to the Romans 4.15, quote, For the law worketh wrath. That is, when it reveals to us that we've done wrong, it brings home to our hearts nothing but God's wrath and displeasure. For when the conscience sees that it has done wrong, it feels that it is worthy of eternal death. And if punishment would soon follow, it would have to despair. 
This is meant when the Lord commands this servant to be sold with all he has, because he cannot pay, make payment. What does the servant do now? He foolishly goes to work and thinks he will pay the debt. He falls down and asks the Lord to have patience with him. This is a torment of all consciences when sin comes and smarts deeply until they feel in what a sad state they are before God. Then they have no rest. They run hither and thither, seek help here and there to become free from sin. And in their presumption, they think they can do enough to pay God in full, as we've been taught hitherto, from which also have come so many pilgrimages, charitable foundations, cloisters, masses, and other nonsense. So we fasted and scourged ourselves and became monks and nuns. And all this came because we understood to begin a life and to do many works of which God should take account and allow himself to be paid by them and have thought to quiet and put the conscience at peace with God. So we've acted just like this fool in today's lesson. Now a heart that is thus smitten with the law and feels its blows and distress is truly humiliated. Therefore it falls before the Lord and asks for grace that it still makes a mistake that it will help itself. For this we cannot root out of our nature. When the conscience feels such misery, it dare promise more than all the angels in heaven are able to do. Here one can easily promise and bind himself to do everything that may be required of him, for he finds himself at all times thus prepared that he still hopes to do enough for his sin by means of his good works. Now behold the things men were guilty of heretofore in the world's history, and you'll find it so. When men preached, give to the church, run into the cloister, establish many masses, then your sins will be forgiven. When they forced our consciences in the confessional, we did everything they imposed upon us and gave more than they demanded of us. What should the poor people do? They were glad to be helped in this manner. Therefore they ran and they martyred themselves to get rid of their sins. And yet it did no good whatever, for the conscience remained in doubt as before, so that it did not know on what terms it stood with God. Or if it were secure, it became still worse and fell into the presumption that God had to regard its works. Reason cannot let this alone, nor get around it, so as to abandon it. Hence the Lord comes, and he sympathizes with this distress, because a servant thus lies captive and bound in his sins, and in addition to this, such a fool as to want to help himself, looks for mercy, knows nothing to say of grace, and feels nothing but sins which press him heavily knows no one to help him. Then his Lord has mercy on him and sets him free. Here is represented to us the gospel and its nature and how God deals with us. When you are thus held fast in sins and you torment yourself to become free from them, 
gospel comes and says, No, not so, my dear friend. It will do no good for you to torture and torment yourself to madness. Your works accomplish nothing. God's mercy does it all. He has compassion on your affliction and sees you a captive in such anguish, struggling in the mire, and that cannot help yourself out. He sees that you cannot pay the debt, therefore he forgives you all. Hence it is nothing but pure mercy, for he forgives you the debt, not because of your works and merit, but because he pities your cries, complaints, and humiliation. This means that God has regard for an humble heart, as the prophet David says in Psalm 51:19. Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Such a heart, he says, is broken and cast down and cannot help itself, and is glad when God gives it a helping hand. This is the best sacrifice before God and the true way to heaven. Now this follows out of mercy because God pities our distress. He yields his claims and nullifies them and never says, sell what you have and make payment. He might well have proceeded and said, you must pay. I have the right to demand it. I will not on your account and all my own right. No one could have blamed him. Yet he does not wish to deal with him according to our ideas of right, but changes justice into grace, has mercy on him, and gives him liberty with wife and child and everything he has, and makes him a present of the debt besides. Makes him a present of the debt besides. This is what God preaches through the gospel, namely, he who believes to him not only the debt, but also the punishment shall be remitted. To this no works are to be added. For whoever preaches that through his works one can atone for his debt and punishment has already denied the gospel. For the two cannot be tolerated together. God should have mercy and that you should have any merit. If it is grace, then it is not merit, but if it is merit, then it is justice and no grace, as Romans 11:6 says. For if you pay what you owe, he shows you no mercy. But if he shows mercy, then you do not pay for what you receive. Therefore we must leave him alone to deal with us, receive from him, and believe. This is what today's gospel teaches. Now you see, since this servant is thus humbled through the knowledge of his sins, that the word ministers very strong comfort to him when the Lord declares him free, remits him both the dead and the punishment. By this is indicated that the gospel does not reach vicious hearts nor those who walk forth impudently but only troubled consciences whose sins oppress them, from which they desire to be free. On these God will have mercy and bestow upon them all things. Thus this servant now received the word, and thereby became God's friend. For if he had not received the word, 
it would have done him no good, and forgiveness would have amounted to nothing. Therefore, it is not enough that God has the forgiveness of sins offered to man, and has proclaimed the golden year of the kingdom of grace, but it must also be grasped and believed. If you believe it, then you are free from sin, and all is right. Now this is the first part of a Christian life taught by this and all the Gospels which properly consists in faith that deals only with God. Besides, it is also indicated that we cannot grasp the Gospel unless there be present first a conscience that is afflicted and miserable because of sin. Besides, it is also indicated, we'll repeat that, that we cannot grasp the gospel unless there be present first a conscience that is afflicted and miserable because of sin. Now conclude from this that it's nothing but deception that is preached in relation to our works and free will, and if a different way to blot out sin and obtain grace is taught than this gospel here advocates, namely that the Divine Majesty looks upon our wretchedness and has mercy upon us through some other means. For the text says clearly that he presents and remits to those who have nothing, and thus concludes that we have nothing wherewith to remunerate God. So you may have free will as you wish in temporal things, in outward life and character, or an outward piety and virtue as man can have in his own strength. Yet you hear now that it's nothing before God. What can free will do here? There is nothing in it at any rate but struggling and trembling. Therefore, if you would be free from sin, you must desist from and despair in all your own works. Cling to the cross, plead for grace, and then lay hold of the gospel by faith. Now follows the second part of this parable, that of the fellow servant. We would gladly die every hour for the sake of our faith, for this servant has enough. He retains his life and goods, his wife and child, and has a gracious Lord. So he would be a great fool if he would now go and do everything he could to obtain a gracious Lord. His Lord might then well say, He only mocks me. Therefore he dare not add any work, but only receives the grace offered him. Be joyful and thank his Lord, and do unto others as the Lord did to him. Thus it is now with us. If we believe, then we have a gracious God and need no more. And it would indeed be well for us to die soon. But if we are to live on earth, our life must not be devoted to obtain God's favor by means of our works. For he who does this mocks and blasphemes God, as men hitherto have taught that we must so long lie at God's ears with our good works, praying, fasting, and the like, until we obtain grace. Grace we have already received, not through our works, but through God's mercy. If you are to live, you must have something to do and work at, 
and all this must be devoted to your neighbor, says Christ. But that servant went out. How does he go out? Where has he been? What has he been in? He has been in faith, but now he goes out through love, by which he is to show himself to the people. For faith leads the people from the people unto God, but love leads out unto the people. Previously he was within, between God and himself alone, for no one can see or vouch for faith how both work together. Therefore one must needs go out of the eyes of the people where no one is seen or felt but God. This is transacted alone through faith, and no external work can be added to it. Now he comes out before his neighbor. If he had remained within, he could well have died and gone to heaven. But he must come out and live among other people and mingle with them in this world. Here he finds a fellow servant whom he strikes and beats and throttles him, demanding payment showing no mercy. This is what I've often said, that we Christians must break forth and show our deeds before the people that we have the true faith. God does not need your works. He has enough in your faith. Yet he wants you to work so that you may show thereby your faith to yourself and also to the world. For God indeed sees faith, but you and the people do not see it. Therefore, you should devote the works of faith to the benefit of your neighbor. Thus, this servant is an example and picture of all those who should serve their neighbor through faith. But what does this servant do? Just as we who think we believe and partly do believe and rejoice that we have heard the gospel, can say a great deal about it, but no one wants to follow it in his life. We've brought matters so far that the doctrine and jugglery of the devil have been partly overthrown. We now see what is right and what is wrong, that we must deal with God alone through faith, but with our neighbor through our works. But we cannot bring it to pass that as to love one does to another as God has done to him. We ourselves complain that some of us have become much worse than they were before. As this servant will not forgive his neighbor but seeks to collect his claim, so we also do and say, I'm not in duty bound to give what is my own to another and yield my rights. If another has offended me, he owes it to me to reconcile me and pardon, and ask for pardon, rather. For thus the world teaches and acts, here you are right, no prince or king will compel you to give to another what is your own, but they must permit you to do what you wish with your own. The civil government only compels so far that you may not do with another's goods what you would like, not that you must forgive or give your goods to another, civil government can't compel you in that way. 
This is right before the world, as reason concludes, that to everyone belongs his own, therefore he does not do wrong if he uses his goods as he will and robs no one of his own. But what says this gospel? If God also would have acted thus and had maintained his right and said, I act in harmony with justice when I punish the wicked and take what is my own, who will prevent me? Where then would we all be? We would all go to ruin. Therefore, because he has given up his claims on us, he desires that we too should do likewise. Therefore also give up your right and think, God has given me ten thousand pounds, why should I not give my neighbor a hundred shillings? Thus your goods are no longer your own, but your neighbor's. God could indeed have kept his own, for he owed you nothing, yet he gives himself wholly unto you, becomes your gracious Lord, is kind to you, and serves you with all his goods. What he has is all yours. Why then will you not also do likewise? Hence, if you wish to be in his kingdom, you must do as he does. But if you want to remain in the kingdom of the world, you will not enter his kingdom. Therefore, the sentence in Matthew twenty-five forty-two, which Christ will speak on the last day, belongs to those who are not Christians. For I was hungry, and you did not give me to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink and so on. But you say, you still insist that God will have no regard for our good works and on their account will save no one. Answer, he would have them done freely without any thought of remuneration. Not that we thereby obtain something, but that we do them to our neighbor and thereby show that we have the true faith in our hearts. For what have you that you have given him, and by which you merit anything, that he should have mercy on you and forgive you all things that you have done against him? What profit has he by it? Nothing has he but that you praise and thank him, and do as he has done. God may be thanked in thee, then you are in his kingdom, and have all things that you should have. This is the other part of the Christian life, which is called love, by which one goes out from God to his neighbor. Those who do not prove their faith by their works of love are servants who want others to forgive them, but will not forgive their neighbor, nor yield their rights. Hence, it will also be with them as with this servant. For when the other servants who preach the gospel see that God has freely given them all things, and yet they refuse to forgive anyone, they become sad in seeing such things, and they are pained that they act so foolishly toward the gospel, and no one lays hold of it. So what do they do then? They do no more then come before their Lord with their complaint and say, So it goes, you forgive them both the debt and the punishment, and freely give them all things. But we cannot prevail upon them to do to others as you have done to us.
This is the complaint. Then God will summon them to appear before him at the last judgment and accuse them of these things and say, When you were hungry, thirsty, and afflicted, I helped you. When you lay in sins, I had compassion upon you and forgave the debt. Therefore, you must also now pay your debt. There is now no grace nor mercy, nothing but wrath and eternal punishment. No prayers will help from now on, and they become speechless and are cast into torment until they pay the uttermost farthing. St. Peter said the same of those who heard the gospel and again fell away. 2 Peter 2.21 It were better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than, after knowing it, to turn away from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Why would it be better? Because if they turn back, it will be twofold worse with them than it was before they had heard the gospel. As Christ also says in Matthew twelve forty-five of the unclean spirit, who takes unto him seven other spirits worse than themselves, comes with them and dwells in the man out of whom they were cast, the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Thus it is now with us also, and it will be still more so. So it also was with Rome. Their things were in fine condition in the days of the martyrs. But afterwards they went to ruin. Abominations arose. And Antichrist ruled, and the city became so wicked that it could not be worse. The grace of God preached through the gospel is so great that the people do not grasp it. Therefore, great and terrible punishment must also follow. Thus we will see just punishment come upon us, inasmuch as we do not obey the gospel we have and know. For as often as God has afflicted the people with severe punishment, he previously set up a great light, as when he led the Jews out of their country into captivity, he first brought forth the pious king Josiah, who again restored the law in order to reform the people. But when they fell away again, God punished them as they deserved. So also when he wished to overthrow the Egyptians, he sent Moses and Aaron to preach and enlighten them. Again, when he wished to destroy the world with the flood, he raised up the patriarch Noah. But when the people would not believe and only grew worse, terrible punishment followed. So it was with the five cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, and with the rest which were punished because they would not hear pious lot. Therefore, such terrible punishments will also now come upon those who hear the gospel and do not receive it. So this servant in the gospel is cast off and must pay what he owes. This means that he must endure the pain and consequences. But he who endures the pain for the debt will never be saved. For to sin belongs pain, which is death. When one dies, he dies forever, and there is no more help nor salvation for him. 
Therefore, let us receive these things as a warning. Those, however, who are hardened and will not hear will guard against it, lest they hear, that is. This is an elegant, comfortable gospel, and it is sweet to the afflicted conscience because it contains nothing but forgiveness of sins. But for stubborn heads and hardened hearts, it's a terrible sentence, particularly so because this servant is not a heathen, but he belongs to those under the gospel who held the faith. For as the Lord has mercy on him and forgives him what he has done, he must without doubt be a Christian. Hence this is not a punishment for the heathen people, neither for the common crowd who hear the gospel with the external ear and have it on their tongue, but do not live according to it. But this is for a Christian. Thus we have the sum of this gospel. What further office our custom here to discuss whether the sins will come back that were once forgiven I let pass well they don't know what forgiveness of sin is and they think it's something that sticks in the heart and lies still there whereas it is the whole kingdom of Christ which lasts forever without end whereas the sun shines and gives light nonetheless although I close my eyes. So this mercy seat or forgiveness of sins stands forever, though I fall. And as I see the sun again, as soon as I open my eyes, so I have the forgiveness of sins again, when I look up and again come to Christ. Therefore, we must not make forgiveness so narrow as a fool's dream. This is said on today's gospel. Now, page 293, the 23rd Sunday after Trinity. This sermon is not found in C edition. Text is Matthew 22, 15 to 22. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness, and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny, and he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, unto God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Well, knowing man, what corruption is in man, they sure must have envied him and hated him. In this gospel, there is pictured to us how high that reason and human wisdom agree with the divine wisdom 
and how shamelessly they attacked, even when they wished to be the most prudent, as takes place here among the Pharisees, who were the best, and the most intelligent people among the Jews, as they also prove themselves to be, yet their wisdom must become foolishness. They could not catch Christ in his sermons nor in his works, and yet they would gladly have found a reason to put him to death. Therefore they thought to seize him in the most subtle manner, and therefore propounded to him a most subtle argument, so pointed that human reason could not have devised a more pointed one, and said to him, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar, or not? Now it's time to turn the tape over. They imagined thus, now we'll lay hold of him, for he must answer yes or no. Does he say yes, then we've conquered him, or does he say no, then he also is caught? In that they say, teacher, they aim to compel him to answer and rightly agree with them. And in that they say, we know that thou art true, they admonish him of his office. Where should Christ flee? Every door was closed to him. But he would not escape through the opening they made. Was this not a subtle device? Do they not sufficiently show that they were prudent people? Whichever way their Lord had answered, he would have been taken. Yea, did they not act wisely enough, in that they brought with them the servants of Herod? Thought indeed they would accomplish their end by stratagem? but he should not escape. They thought thus, Wait, we will now counsel him. Does he say no? Then the servants of Herod are present, and will put him to death as a revolutionist, as one who sets himself against the Roman government. Does he say yes? Then he will speak against the independence of the Jewish people, and we will incite the people against him. For the Jews wish to be a free people and to have their own king of their own blood as was promised to them by God through Moses when he wrote in Deuteronomy 17:15, Thou shalt surely set him king over thee whom the Lord thy God shall choose. From one among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not put a foreign over thee who is not thy brother. And they did not know differently than that the same kingdom should stand until the time of the true king, until the time of Christ. As the patriarch Jacob preached concerning it and said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. Genesis 49.10 
And to this end God also chose, especially this people, and formed a kingdom from them only for the sake of Christ. They had many other sayings to the end that they should not serve anyone. They were the head and not the tail, and so forth in Genesis 28, 44. Now this and other like passages moved the Pharisees and scribes among the people, and they boasted of it as it is now beaten into the people that the church cannot err in our day. Therefore they thought thus, Does he say yes, then he blasphemes against God and is worthy of death as a blasphemer of God? And the people will stone him, for God promised and agreed to give this people liberty. And they were in all times God's people, even in the midst of their captivity, However, at that time, as at the present, they had no king, and therefore there rose among the people at large a great murmur and faction and insurrection. For this people were educated by the law that they should have a king of their own flesh and blood, as I said. Therefore they did not cease to set themselves against foreign kings and rulers until they were destroyed. Many consequently suffered death. This happened frequently, for they were a stiff-necked, rude, and hardened people. Therefore the Romans, who at the time had the rule and authority over them, protected the country well, and they had to divide it into four provinces. And in all places they thoroughly took possession by means of princes and tetrarchs, in order that they thus divided might not so soon come together and create revolution that they could be better kept be better kept in subjection where they wished to rebel against the Roman Empire. Hence Pilate was a governor appointed by Rome in the country of the Jews. Herod, a Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch, in the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, as Luke relates in 3.1, and all for the purpose to make the Jews subjects of Rome. Hence the Jews became angry, raging, and foolish, especially at the time of Christ when they greatly desired to have their own king. Consequently, the Pharisees now devised this scheme and thought thus, Wait! The Romans desire to have the authority and rule. If he answers no to our question, then the Tetrarch is at hand and will behead him. Does he say yes? Then the people in a mass will rise up against him and we will accomplish our end. They wish thus, as they think, to find cause to put the Lord to death or forever suppress his doctrine and work among the people. As the Jews now do here, so it is everywhere, that the principal things are overlooked and we worry ourselves about other unnecessary matters. Thus the Pharisees here take in hand and concern themselves about whether they are free or not, seeing they had in, they had in the law and in the word of God the promise that they should be subject to none other than to their own king, yet now they are subject to the Roman emperor. 
They learn in their scriptures how they should honor God and love their neighbor. They let go of that and concern themselves about other matters. They had the promise if they did according to the word and commandment of God, they should be a free people. About doing this, they did not concern themselves, and yet they wished to be free and have their own king. We act also in the very same way. We wish to enjoy Christian liberty and imagine if we destroy pictures or are disobedient to the government that we are by virtue of this Christians. In this way we overlook faith and love. But what does Christ do when the Pharisees so cunningly lay hold of him? He slays them with their own words and catches them by means of their own counsel, by which they thought to catch him. He says, neither yes nor no, as the evangelist writes and says. But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny, and he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? And they say unto him, Caesar's. Here you see the master stroke the Lord uses. He asks them to hand him the tribute money and inquires whose image and superscription it bears. Then they answer him, Caesar's. He then freely concluded that they were subject to Caesar, to whom they were obligated to pay tax and tribute, as if he should say, Have you thus permitted Caesar to come among you, so that he met your money, and his coin is in circulation and favor among you? Then he has triumphed in the game. As if he said, You are to blame that Caesar is your ruler. What should they do now in the face of this answer? They marveled and went away. They thought they would conquer him in a masterly manner, but their wisdom and shrewdness deceived them. This is written for our consolation in order that we who believe in Christ should know that we have a wisdom that far surpasses all other wisdom. A strength and righteousness which are not to be compared with any human strength or righteousness, for against the Holy Spirit no counsel can prevail. We have the power through Christ to trample sin under feet and to triumph over death, also a wisdom that surpasses the wisdom of the whole world. If Christ live in us by faith, then we possess him who establishes this in us. But it's not experienced except in times of temptation and opposition. Therefore, if I make use of it, then he comes and gives me the power vigorously to press through all difficulties to victory. In like manner, we should not worry that our doctrine will fail and be put to shame. For let even all the wise and prudent of the world together rise up against the word of God. They overlook the joke that they opposed it, that it took place for their sake. It may indeed happen that they may howl and bite, 
and snap against it so that the people think the gospel will fail, but when they set themselves against it and wish to overthrow it, then it is certain that they are weak. By the same trick they wish to seize and take Christ, they themselves are finally caught. As we see in this gospel and here and there in the writings of Paul, especially in the history of St. Stephen, we see how they failed to quote the scriptures aright. Yea, that which they did quote is used against them, for the Jews charged Stephen that he spoke against the temple, and also against God who told them to build the temple. They brought forth passages of scripture by which they tried to suppress and conquer him, but Stephen, full of the Holy Ghost, showed unto them by one passage of Scripture after another how God did not live in houses made with hands. David wished to build him a house, but he did not desire it. What was the reason? God had lived a long time before David's day among his people. He must indeed be a poor God and needs a house for his dwelling place. And thus, by many histories, he proves that God does not dwell in houses made by man. What should the Jews do? They have the passage clearly before their eyes, which they quoted against Stephen, which he witnessed against them. Like manner must all come to shame and be overthrown, rise up against this divine wisdom and the word of God. Consequently, God's people should not fear, even if all the wisdom and power of the world would oppose the gospel, yea, even if they plan to suppress it by the shedding of blood. For the more blood that is shed, the more Christians there will be. The blood of Christians, as Tertullian says, is the seed from which the Christians grow. Satan must be drowned in the blood of Christians. Consequently, there is no art that can suppress the gospel by force. It is with the gospel as with the palm tree, which has the nature and character that it flourishes at the top, and one may laden it as heavy as he wishes, especially if it be used as a beam or support. It does not weaken under any burden, but rises in spite of the burden. Such is also the nature of the gospel, the more one opposes it, the greater it lays hold of us, and the more one burdens it, the more it grows. Therefore we should not be afraid of powers. We should fear our prosperity and good days, which cause us more harm than our anguish and persecution. We should not be afraid in face of the wisdom and the shrewdness of the world, well, they can do us no harm. Yes, the more the wisdom of the world opposes the truth, the pure and clear does the truth become. Consequently, the gospel can experience nothing better than that the world rise up against it with all its force and wisdom. Yea, the more my conscience, sin, and Satan attack me, the stronger does my righteousness become. For the sins which worry me, pain me. Against them I persevere harder and harder in prayer and in my cry to God. Then faith 
and the righteousness of Christ becomes stronger and stronger in me. This is what St. Paul means when he says in 2 Corinthians 12.9, My power is made perfect in weakness. Now, since we possess such a treasure that becomes stronger by virtue of trial and opposition, we should not fear, but be of good courage, rejoice in tribulation. St. Paul says to the Romans, 5.3, that we joy in tribulations also. And as the apostles did, who departed from the presence of the council with great rejoicing, and thank God that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. If Satan were only prudent enough to keep quiet and let the gospel be preached, he would receive less injury from it. For if the gospel is not attacked, it completely rusts, has no occasion or reason to make its power and influence manifest. Thus we are here still secure, no one attacks us, and as a result we always continue just as we were, yea, we become worse. In that certain enemies attacked us with the scriptures, they gain very little, in that they've taken up their pen against us, they accomplish no more than if they blew into the fire. But if they had cast us into the fire or beat our heads, there would indeed be more Christians for our sake. Consequently, we have here a consolation when we are tacted that Christ is in us and holds the field of victory through us. Christ is so near us that we triumph at all times through him because we abide in him. As long as we do not have opposition taking us by the neck, he does nothing, but when we are attacked and conquered, then he is at hand and puts all our enemies to shame. Here we may also learn the lesson that those who are little more than other people, brighter, stronger, and endowed with special gifts of reason, nature, and fortune, who are more artistic, learned, and intelligent than others, who indeed are gifted with speech, are talented to lead other people, and are able to rule and arrange everything in the best way. They are the most opposed to God and to faith, trust more in their own strength and reason than they do in God. For nature, poisoned as it is, leads them to the point that they cannot and will not use their gifts to the best advantage for the welfare and edification of their neighbor. For they trust in their gifts and think they will obtain now this and now that, and never remember that they also need God's help and strength to that end. As the Pharisees and scribes do here, who are so certain, as they think, if they thus lay hold of Christ, they would take him captive, for it's not possible, they say, for him to escape. We've ensnared him, whether he says yes or no. Behold how cunning and perverse human nature is. Methinks this is well pictured here. A, there is not in man but evil, lying and deceiving, cunning and all manner of mischief. Indeed, in his very nature, man is nothing else than a liar. Psalm 116, 11. 
One may not entrust anything to man. Do not imagine that anyone tells you the truth. Man lies in whatever he speaks. And why? The fountain is evil, that is to say, the heart is not good. Therefore also does the river flowing therefrom produce nothing good. Hence does the Lord oftentimes call men, generation of vipers, brood of serpents, and so forth. Is not that a beautiful title for man? Just you go and boast of your piety, your strength, or your free will. Behold, the world indeed may be fine and pious, shining with holiness, but at the bottom nothing will be found but a generation of vipers and a serpent's brood, and that, most of all, in the worthiest, most esteemable, intelligent, and wise people. If you peruse the history of the Greeks, Jews, and Romans, you will find that the best and wisest rulers, who according to the judgment of men, governed well, have not thought of God, but confided in themselves alone. To God's might they've attributed nothing. From this it follows that the less adroit a person is before the world, the less will he do against God. Adroit is cleverness or resourcefulness in handling situations. Having or showing skill. I'll read that sentence over. From this it shows that the less adroit a person is before the world, the less will he do against God. And those who are ingenious and honored in the world lie and deceive more than the others thinking to cover up their deception and malice by deceitful and cunning acts. True it is, they may full well conceal it. The Holy Scripture, however, has a keen eye and knows them exceedingly well. Therefore, Scripture often calls such fellows lions, wolves, bears, swine, and wild beasts, namely, such as rage, eating and devouring everything with their deceit. Hence, in the Old Testament, the Jews were forbidden to eat some animals as being unclean, those that are enumerated, and others, for no other reason that it might be thus indicated, that there are some people who are strong, mighty, rich, adroit, learned, intelligent and wise, people that must be shunned and fled from as though they were something unclean, such people as mislead and deceive others by their appearance, their power and wisdom. For people will not consider them as such, nor believe that they are men who plan evil things and dare to carry them out. No man whatever, therefore, is to be trusted or believed. Believe no one, he will mislead you wherever he can. If indeed you trust anyone, you will act against God, not trusting in him. For it is written in Jeremiah 17:57, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord.
for he shall be like the heath in the desert, shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in the salt land, and not inhabited. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. The heath in the desert is a uh, shrub growing in the desert. It's often evergreen plants that thrive on open barren, use the acid and ill-drained soil. Now, someone might object, what is to be done? Must we not have intercourse and dealings one with the other? And how otherwise can human life continue? Surely we must buy and sell and market our goods among the people. No one should be believed, trusted. All human dealings would come to an end. I answer, it's true, one must deal with the other, and one needs the other's help. But what I demand, but what I demand, whatever you deal about among men in buying or selling, you are to consider it as something uncertain which is not to be trusted and believed in, for certain it is. You trust any man, you are already deceived, for human nature in itself cannot but lie and deceive. Everything is uncertain among men, their deeds and words are unstable. That you may well believe. The only thing you can believe among men is that they're not to be believed. Therefore we are to put all our trust only in the Lord and say, O Lord, Thou art my life, my soul, and my body, my goods and possessions, and all that is mine. Do Thou direct and ordain it all according to Thy divine will. In Thee do I trust, in Thee do I believe. Thou wilt surely not desert me in such a perilous undertaking with such and such a man whom I do not trust. If thou knowest it to be good for me, then see to it that he be true to me. If thou dost not see that it will help me, then do not let him keep his word. I am content, thy will be done. As soon, however, as you think a purchaser to be an honest man who will keep his word and of whom you are certain that he will not deceive you, so soon you have fallen away from God. You prayed to a scepter and put your trust in a liar. Therefore, in dealing with a man, just think in this wise. If he is true, it's good. If not, why then, in God's name, let him be. He cannot do otherwise than lie and deceive. I'll leave it all to God. He will make all well. Out of such false and wicked confidence placed in man, there has crept into Christianity the abuse of the worship of saints. By this the Christian church, that is, the true assembly of the faithful, have suffered notable decline and damage. What else has saints' worship been but solely a devilish thing? For thus have people reasoned, such and such a man has been holy, such things has he said and done, therefore we will follow after him and teach and do likewise. Saint Jerome, Saint Augustine, and Gregory have done this, therefore it's right, and I will believe it. 
St. Francis, Benedict, Dominicus, and St. Bernard have lived thus, have done such and such a thing. Therefore will I also live thus and do as they have done. Furthermore, St. Augustine has been saved by such a rule. Alas, what a poor, unstable, miserable thing this is, not but lies and dreams of man. I should damn St. Augustine and his rule had he laid it down for the purpose of being saved thereby. So blind and foolish is our reason that it will accept even a scepter and a fiction, whereas only God's word is to be accepted in matters of salvation. If, for example, Herod, Pilate, Caiaphas, and Haines preached the gospel, I should have to accept it, and on the other hand, if those who are considered saints arose and preached lies about regulations, hoods and gowns, tonsors, ceremonies, and other inventions of men, I ought not to accept them. For in such cases, not the persons are to be considered, but that which they preach. Now, someone might say, see here... Would you be wiser than all the church fathers and saints and all the bishops and rulers of the whole world? Far be it from me, I do not claim to be wiser than they. But this is true. It is impossible for that which is wise, prudent, great, handsome, mighty, and powerful before the world to agree with the word of God. For thus it is ordained by God that such people must always persecute the gospel. If they were not such, then the gospel would not shine and triumph as it does. The Roman emperors, Hadrian, Trojan, and Diocletian, were the wisest of rulers and reigned so well that all the world praised their government. Yet they persecuted the gospel and could not tolerate the truth. Likewise do we read of the Jewish kings, Ahaz and others, who governed well, that they despised God's word and acted contrary to God's will. Ahaz. Let's check him out. I'll read a little bit about Ahaz in here. Twenty years old was Ahaz when he began to reign, and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem, and did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord his God, like David his father. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, yea, and made his people to pass through the fire, according to the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel. He sacrificed and burned incense in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. When Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to war, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. At that time Rezin, king of Syria, recovered Elath to Syria and drave the Jews from Elath. And the Syrians came to Elath and dwelt there unto this day. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am thy servant and thy son. 
Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Syria and out of the hand of the king of Israel, which rise up against me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent it for present to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria hearkened unto him, for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus, took it, carried the people of it captive to Kerr, and slew Rezin. And King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath Pileser, king of Assyria, and he saw an altar that was at Damascus. King Ahaz sent to Urijah the priest the fashion of the altar and the pattern of it, according to all the workmanship thereof. And Urijah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus to Urijah the priest. So Urijah the priest made it against King Ahaz, came from Damascus. When the king was come from Damascus, the king saw the altar, and the king approached to the altar and offered thereon. He burned his burnt offering and his meat offering and poured his drink offering, sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings upon the altar. And he brought also the brazen altar, which was before the Lord, from the forefront of the house, from between the altar and the house of the Lord, and he put it on the north side of the altar. King Ahaz commanded Urijah the priest, saying, Upon the great altar burn the morning burnt offering, and the evening meat offering, and the king's burnt sacrifice, and his meat offering, with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, and their meat offering, their drink offerings. Sprinkle upon it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice and the brazen altar shall be for me to inquire by. Thus did Urijah the priest according to all that King Ahaz commanded. And King Ahaz cut off the borders of the bases and removed the labor from off them, took down the sea from off the brazen oxen that were under it, put it upon a pavement of stones and the cover for the Sabbath that they had built in the house and the king's entry without a covering for the when they keep the Sabbath they had a covering they had built in the house and the king's entry without turned he from the house of the Lord for the king of Assyria now the rest of the acts of Ahaz which he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Ahaz slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Hezekiah's son reigned in his stead. That was Ahaz and some of his life. He did a lot for his people, I guess, but he worshipped idols. Still God let him have a good rain looks like. Luther says that in our times there have never been emperors, princes, or other people to compare with those. But then it had to come to pass that God put all wisdom of this world to shame through the foolishness of preaching. All this is shown to us in this gospel which, though apparently simple and ordinary, is exceedingly rich and comprises many things. 
How then does the Lord finally deal with the Pharisees after they had shown him the tribute money and answered that the image and superscription was Caesar's? Well, the evangelist tells us the answer to them thus, Render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Although they did not deserve it of the Lord, yet he teaches them the right way, and with these words he also confirms the worldly sword or government. They had hoped that he would condemn it and speak against it. He doesn't do it, however, but he praises earthly government, commands to render unto it what is due to it. It's therefore his desire that there should be magistrates, princes, and masters whom we are to obey, be they what they may and what they list. Neither should we ask whether they possess and exercise government and authority, justly or unjustly. We should only pay heed to that power and authority which is good, for it is ordered and instituted by God. Romans 13. You are not allowed to upbraid the government when at times you're oppressed by princes and tyrants who abuse the power they have from God, some day they will surely have to answer for it. The abuse of a thing does not make it bad if it was good in itself. A golden chain is good, and it is not made worse by being worn around a whore's neck. For if someone were to destroy one of my eyes with it, should I therefore blame the chain? Truly, nay. Thus one must also bear the authority of the ruler. If he abuses it, I am not therefore to bear him a grudge, or take revenge of and punish him with my hands. With my hands. One must obey him solely for God's sake. He stands in God's stead. Let them impose taxes as intolerable as they may. One must obey them and suffer everything patiently for God's sake. Whether they do right or not, that will be taken care of in due time. If therefore your possessions, a your life, and whatever you have be taken from you by those in power, then you are to say, I give it to you willingly. I acknowledge you as my master. Gladly will I be obedient to you. Whether you use the power given to you by God, well or ill, that is your affair. But what if they would take the gospel from us or forbid us to preach it? Then you are to say, The gospel and the word of God I will not give up to you. This is not within your power, for your rule is a temporal rule over worldly matters. But the gospel is a spiritual, a heavenly treasure, and therefore your authority does not extend over the gospel and God's word. We recognize the emperor as a mat master of temporal affairs, but not of God's word. This we shall not suffer to be torn from us, for it is a power of God, against which not even the gates of hell shall prevail. Therefore the Lord beautifully summarizes these two things, and in one saying distinguishes them from each other. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. This honor is due to God, that we are to hold him as a true, almighty, and wise God, and attribute to him all the good things that can be named. And even if I do not render him this honor, he still keeps it, 
Nothing is added to or subtracted from it, whether I believe it or not, for anybody else. But in me he is true, almighty, and wise, if I consider him as such, and believe him to be such as he proclaims himself. To the emperor, however, and to all in power are due reverence, taxes, revenue, and obedience. God will have the heart, body, and possessions are the governments, which is to rule over them in God's stead. This St. Paul says to the Romans in round and clear words, Romans 13, 1 through 7. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But thou do that which is evil. Be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is a minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, tending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor, and so forth. Now Luther ends here, one more paragraph. And for this reason also has government been ordained by God, that it may uphold general peace, which thing alone cannot be paid for by all the money in the world. General peace. We just noticed a few things in the uprising of the peasants, what damage, misery, and war caused by rebellion and the breaking of peace. God grant that things do not go further and that we experience no more. Enough is said on this gospel of temporal government. We've written a special booklet. Whoever desires to read it may do so. Therefore he will find more, or there he will find more on this subject. Now this does uh, remind me of what Paul did when he uh, was threatened by the Jews. They wanted to kill him. But he said he's a subject of Caesar's. He said, I appeal unto Caesar. When those there uh, governors were going to have him judged at Jerusalem, take him, you know, they said, well, will you go on to Jerusalem to be judged there? He said, no way. I appeal unto Caesar. That's I'm a Roman citizen, and I can appeal unto Caesar. So he used his rights in those places. We also can use our constitutional rights, but God help us so we'd rightly discern how to do that too. It is something to think about. Well, not everybody in authority is constitutionally in authority. Because our Constitution, if anybody goes against the Constitution, 
they immediately are out of authority is the way I've heard it. So that's something to think about anyway. And, and uh, in the fear of God, we're still supposed to do all things. Because if they do assert authority over us and overthrow our Constitution, what can we say? But God allowed that. I thought I would mention this matter. Now we're getting to the end of this tape, and uh, there's another sermon on this same text. It'll come on next tape. This other one is found only in the C edition, which Luther subscribed to. And uh, Luther even had his own copy of it, which he had marginal notes and so forth in it. It says here in a footnote down here. So that will continue on the next tape.